Hey, Luke. Hey, Alonzo. So, this is the second of ten episodes in which we look at that entity on which desireism is built. Desire. Right. In our last episode, we made a number of claims that we said are true about desires. That desires are propositional attitudes, that they motivate action, that agents act so as to fulfill the most and strongest of their desires given their active beliefs, that reason is the slave of desires, and so on. That we did. Okay, I have a question about that. Are these claims simply something that you made up and threw out there because you thought they would make a neat moral theory? Is this Alonzo Fife's theory of desires? No, it's not. These claims make up what's called the standard view of desire in the philosophy of mind. Okay, but the standard view is not the only theory. There are a lot of competitors, including the theory that beliefs and desires don't exist at all. The standard theory about beliefs and desires isn't even a clear winner. It's not two laps ahead of the competition or anything like that. It's ahead by you know, maybe a couple of lengths, and the race has just started. Okay, that's true, but it's still the standard view. Even a leading opponent of the theory, Timothy Schroeder, calls it the standard view. Mm -hmm. And it's not an intellectual crime to go with the opinion that's the most widely accepted among experts in the field. The way Schroeder puts the standard view, it says... Quote, for an organism to desire P is for the organism to be disposed to take what actions it believes are likely to bring about P. Okay, let me explain this a bit. When philosophers talk about P that way, they mean P to stand for a proposition, like Israel and Palestine are at peace. So the standard view would say that for an organism to desire Israel and Palestine are at peace is for the organism to be disposed to take what actions it believes are likely to bring about Israel and Palestine art peace, right? Right. Another example of an action-based theory of desire comes from Robert Stallnacher, who says, to desire that P is to be disposed to act in ways that would tend to bring it about that P in a world in which one's beliefs, whatever they are, were true. Okay, that's the standard view. What we said is, Claim number three, a desire as end is an attitude towards a proposition that causes an agent to seek to create or preserve states of affairs in which the proposition is true. This making or keeping a proposition true, that fills the same role as bringing about mm -hmm. P. Right. We also said, claim number five, an agent intends to act so as to fulfill the most and strongest of the agent's desires as ends given the agent's active beliefs. Right, and that fits the claim that desires motivate agents to act in ways they believe will bring about P. Agents would like to bring about P, but false beliefs sometimes get in the way and cause them to fail to bring about P. I still have some concern about what Schroeder means by the phrase, to take actions. I want to make sure that we're not including such things as reflex actions and involuntary muscle spasms as actions in this mm. sense. We're talking about intentional actions here. Of course. You know, a lot of this actually traces back to the 18th century Scottish philosopher, David Hume. Well, I think that Hume had most of this stuff right. This is Hume's theory of intentional action. What Hume missed, that provided the key to my way of thinking, is the idea that desires are propositional attitudes. Desires motivate agents to make or keep true particular propositions. Yeah, Schroeder writes about these propositional attitudes in his article. He writes, quote, 
According to most theories, desires are always desires for conceivable states of affairs. A desire for tea is a desire for a certain state of affairs one has in mind, that one drinks some tea. A desire for a new pair of skates is likewise a desire for mm -hmm. another state of affairs, that one own a new pair of skates, and so on. The idea is also expressed with phrases such as, desires are attitudes towards propositions, or desires have propositional content. Right. That's what's meant by the claim that desires can be expressed in the form of an attitude towards a proposition. An agent has a desire that Israel and Palestine are at peace. Or in Schroeder's example, an agent has a desire that he own a new pair of skates. We also make the claim that beliefs can be expressed as propositional attitudes. That was contained in our first two claims. Claim number one, beliefs and desires as ands exist as propositional attitudes. And claim number two, a belief is an attitude towards a proposition that takes the proposition to be true. Schroeder doesn't specifically talk about beliefs in his entry on desires, but a quick visit to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on belief shows that it says, quote, most contemporary philosophers characterize belief as a propositional attitude. And, quote, Contemporary analytic philosophers of mind generally use the term belief to refer to the attitude we have, roughly, whenever we take something to be the case or regard it as true. So again, we're just using the standard view. It's not the Alonzo Fife theory of beliefs and desires. <laughs> no. They don't claim to have made any progress at all in the theory of desires. I'm simply using the ideas that other people have presented. Ideas that represent the most widely accepted view of what desires are, but as we said, not the only view. Right, and one of the objections that might be raised against the standard theory is that I don't always act on my desires. We mentioned in the last episode that I may want some chocolate cake, but I may go to the fitness center instead. Well, yes, but that's not actually a problem with the theory. Remember claim number five? An agent intends to act so as to fulfill the most and strongest of their desires as ends, given their active beliefs. Your desire for chocolate cake might not qualify for membership in the set of most and strongest. As such, it gets sidelined, overruled by the most and strongest desires. You'll still feel a tug towards the chocolate cake, mm -hmm. showing that the desire is there and working, but you'll not act on it unless there's a way of doing so as a part of the set of most and strongest desires. So that's not a problem for action-based theories of desire. What Schroeder says is, quote, The strength of a desire is typically said to be constituted by the desire's causal power regarding the control of action. For one desire to be stronger than another is for the agent to be disposed to act upon it rather than the second desire in a situation in which A, all else is equal, and B, the agent believes that each desire is satisfiable by a distinct action, and C, the agent believes that the desires are not jointly satisfiable. Right, there. So, are we done? <laughs> not even close. Another claim we made was claim number seven. In addition to desires as ends, there are desires as means. Desires for states that, given one's active beliefs, will lead to the fulfillment of an end. Desires as means are constituted by desires as ends and beliefs. Yep, you'll find Schroeder expressing that claim in his entry on desire as well. Quote, Some desires are for states of affairs that are wanted for themselves. These are intrinsic desires. It is generally agreed that pleasure is desired for its own sake. And it is plausible that many people also desire the welfare of their children, the success of their favorite sports team, and the end of injustice. 
and desire them all intrinsically. And he continues, Normally, however, one calls a desire instrumental when one means that the end is desired merely as a means to some other end, and not at all for its own sake. Yep. Now, I think we need to explain that what Schroeder calls intrinsic desires, mm -hmm. I call desires as ends. Right. What he calls instrumental desires, I call desires as means. Mm -hmm. It appears that Schroeder's terms are becoming the jargon of those who study in this area, and we may have to adopt them for that reason. However, I find them confusing. Yeah, we talked about this in our first season. Instrumental desire sounds like it should mean useful desire, but it doesn't. It means a desire for something insofar as the thing that is desired is useful, not insofar as the desire itself is useful. And intrinsic desire sounds like the desire itself is intrinsic to the agent. It is part of the agent's makeup. But instrumental desires are also part of the agent's makeup. There's no difference about that. So I think talking about desires as ends and desires as means is less confusing. Well, I could tell you a story that might make some sense of Schroeder's terms, if you're interested. Is it a good story? Uh, you'll have to tell me. A long time ago, in ancient Greece, philosophers recognized the distinction between things valued as ends and things valued as means. They assumed that ends had value in virtue of their intrinsic properties, and they called these intrinsic values. Things valued as means, they called instrumental values. As the idea that value was grounded on desires gained traction, these concepts of intrinsic and instrumental values turned into talk of intrinsic and instrumental desires. That is a good story, but I'm not convinced you can prove that theory about history. Oh, probably not. But it helps our understanding of the link between intrinsic and instrumental desires as Schroeder and others talk about them on the one hand, and what's traditionally been known as intrinsic and instrumental value on the other. Either way, in the Stanford article, you'll find the distinction we make between desires as ends and desires as means expressed as a distinction between what Schroeder and others call intrinsic and instrumental desires. Now, there's an important point about these claims that I think needs to be addressed. In presenting the standard view for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Schroeder raises an objection. Quote, a number of philosophers have suggested that desires are only one psychological state able to initiate action, so that it is a mistake to identify desires with psychological states disposing us to actions. Some of these philosophers have focused on the negative point that what might be called true desires do not exhaust the possible motivational states. Okay, first, this notion of true desires, that sets off a few alarm bells. It sounds like we're heading towards an application of the no true Scotsman fallacy. Okay, that's a fair warning. Uh, for the sake of our listeners, the no true Scotsman fallacy is a way of trying to salvage an argument by restricting the definition of some term. For example, I might say that no Scotsman would ever be a Nazi. And you show me a picture of a Scotsman who is a Nazi, so I answer, well, no true Scotsman would be a Nazi. <laughs> what I've simply done is redefined the term Scotsman. I've made the definition a lot narrower and made it true by definition that a so-called true Scotsman cannot be a Nazi. I'm worried that if somebody starts to claim that no true desire would motivate an agent in a particular way, that he might be pulling the same move. For example... Wayne Davis distinguishes between two types of desires, volative desires and appetitive desires. 
He then takes one of them to be true desires and casts the other out of the realm of desires. It no longer belongs. After he casts it out, he says that there are things other than true desires that are capable of motivating action. However, this is just semantics. Is that really what he says? Yes. Note that what Davis was arguing for was a definition of desire that best accounts for our intuitions as to its mm. use. His conclusion was that our use of the term desire is one that makes this distinction and is a use that allows for some entities that are not true desires to motivate action. This is how we talk, according to Davis. You know, that brings up the point I wanted to talk about. A lot of philosophy is concerned with something called conceptual analysis, where the goal is to create a kind of super dictionary made up of definitions for terms that not only capture every nuance of people's intuitions about the meaning of each term and our actual practice of using that term, but definitions that are also logically consistent, and mm -hmm. if they're meant to refer to things in the real world, do actually successfully match up with the real world. Right, and whether or not a theory of a term passes muster is determined by whether or not the theory provides this best account of use, consistency, and reference. Yeah, use, consistency, and reference. And that's why you'll read all kinds of arguments about how, for example, we can intuitively imagine a distant planet where water isn't made of H2O but XYZ, and yet we would still call it water. And so those intuitions have implications for what the best super dictionary definition of water is, and so on. But I've got to say, that's just not my project. I'm not doing philosophy to create a super dictionary that captures every nuance right. of what people's intuitions say about the meaning and use of English terms. Me either. I'm more than happy to scrap a common usage of a term in favor of a definition that lets us talk about things in the real world more clearly and precisely. Uh, this is what mm -hmm. happened, for example, when we stopped talking about dolphins as being a kind of fish because we realize that reality isn't actually carved up that way. Dolphins right. have more in common with cows than they do with carp. And so <laughs> even though we had always talked about dolphins being fish, and that's what our intuition said, we changed the way we use the term fish, because we can communicate better when the borders around the meaning of our terms roughly match up with the borders that exist in reality. So I'm not actually looking for a theory of desire that helps us create a super dictionary's entry for the term desire that, you know, fits the world and captures all our intuitions about its meaning. I'm after a theory of desire that helps us predict and explain the world around us. Even if we have to throw out some of our intuitions about desire because those intuitions turn out not to match reality very cleanly. So back to Davis, if Davis's two types of desires, volative and appetitive, are both propositional attitudes that cause an agent to act so as to make or keep true the proposition that is the object of that desire, then strictly speaking, desirism doesn't have much of a reason to care whether or not Davis is right or wrong about those two types of desires, and we have no reason to care whether he calls one of them true desires or not. If he wants to talk about desires in that way, that's fine, and I can just translate his language about desires into my language about desires, and we won't necessarily be disagreeing about any matters of fact. We'll just be talking right. slightly different languages about the same phenomena. So a substantive objection to desirism would have to take the form of a claim that there are states that cause an agent to intentionally act a particular way, but that state is not a propositional attitude. Mm -hmm. Or it's a propositional attitude that somehow motivates an agent, but it doesn't move the agent to make or keep that proposition true. 
we haven't established, and we're not even going to try to establish, that an action-based theory of desire represents the best super-dictionary definition of desire, mm -hmm. one that captures all of our intuitions about the meaning of desire and so on. What we presented is a theory that gives us the best hope of explaining and predicting the actions of intentional agents in the world around mm -hmm. us. The two questions to answer are, one, is there a different way of carving up conceptual space that makes our communication with each other more effective? And two, how well does it do at explaining and predicting events in the world around us? Right. And I would like to tackle that second question first. Tim Schroeder's book, Three Faces of Desire, has a section in it in which he identifies eight objections to action-based theories of desire. I think it would be useful to look at those objections and categorize them in terms of inadequate superdictionary definition types of objections versus failure to explain and predict intentional action types of objections and see what we can do to answer that second type of objection. I can do that. All right. Talk to you next time.